In the late 1950s, Stephen Sondheim lived in a brownstone building in New York City, and like many an artist, he had no bedtime. During that time, he was working on writing the lyrics to Gypsy. And Sondheim found himself with a neighbor who was an incredibly famous actress also working on a Broadway show. The legendary Catherine Hepburn. One particularly long night, Stephen recalled a banging at the door, and he opened it and found Katie barefoot and exasperated. In her perfect transatlantic accent, Kate yelled that she couldn't sleep with all the racket coming from his piano. Looking at the clock and noticing how late it was, Stephen apologized and asked the Hollywood icon, well, if I was keeping you up, why didn't you just call? Loudly, the actress stomped down the hallway. I don't have your number, Stephen, and slammed the door. It would be the beginning of a long-standing, intense, but hilarious feud between the two neighbors. Sondheim would always get a good laugh when he spoke of Catherine Hepburn and her ways to get him to stop talking or making noise. Sondheim would have intense relationships and friendships with women for the rest of his life. People noticed that Sondheim was delicate and patient with most of the strong women he worked with, and it was a patience he had likely learned in his dealings with his mother. But there was something else that people had started to notice about Stephen Sondheim. He never seemed to be romantically interested in women, though they were frequently interested in him. There were dates, and his name was thrown around in connection to an actress or model here and there, but Sondheim was carrying a heavy secret, one that he guarded closely, one that only his most intimate friends knew, and if the secret came out, it could have been the end of his career, which was just getting started. This is God's Favorites, a history podcast. Stephen Sondheim, Episode 2. Sondheim's gamble with anyone can whistle had been a disaster, plagued by drama. Angela Lansbury had begun to have doubts about the content, and Sondheim had to hustle for the show's money. There was drama amongst the cast, including the fact that Lansbury had found out that there had been a move to replace her in the role with a younger actress. Cast members remember hearing Lansbury screaming at Sondheim backstage. During one choreography rehearsal, Herbert Ross gave instructions to a dancer on how to do a specific step. The dancer misjudged the end of the stage and fell into the orchestra pit. He was fine, but the string player who broke his fall was not. The musician would suffer a stroke and die shortly after. Theater is a superstitious business in which actors have certain beliefs. You don't whistle backstage. You don't say the name of the play Macbeth and... Now, if the death of a musician wasn't enough of a harbinger of doom, their lead actor, Henry Lasko, died of a very sudden heart attack. Lasko had been pushing for Lansbury to be replaced, so his death did clear up that drama, but an exhausted group of artists pushed through to opening. Anyone can whistle closed after nine performances. Sondheim, nevertheless, would be a man about town as he continued to work. He would be spotted with his friends and numerous beautiful actresses who found that Stephen understood them, took them seriously, and didn't objectify them. Many a jealous boyfriend suddenly realized that their actress girlfriends were in awe of Sondheim and his wit. Many a girl had also noticed he was never aggressively pursuing anyone, and yet he was able to capture many a girl's attention. Oh, he did occasionally flirt. But it never went very far. But it was Mary Rogers, daughter of Oscar Hammerstein's partner Richard Rogers, who would be the woman 
he would let get the closest to him. Mary recalled one night with Sondheim in her father's home, where he finally revealed his secret. He was gay. Mary, by her own omission, was heartbroken because she had fallen in love with him, and he was so gentle and talented and encouraging to her. She suggested maybe he visit a psychiatrist. I don't want to, he said. Mary and Steve didn't talk about the situation again. In 1951, she got married. Sondheim remained a close constant in her life, making her first husband suspicious. During one argument, her husband finally addressed the issue. The problem is, Mary, you've never been in love with me, she remembered him saying. You're in love with Steve. And she knew it was true. She had always been in love with him, and Steve cared deeply for her. He would talk about a future with her. They'd worked together in the mid-50s on Lady and the Tiger, and Mary had admitted that her husband's assessment was correct. She was in love with Stephen, but she was also one of the few people who knew his deepest, darkest secret. Still, youthful ignorance had convinced her he might be able to fight those feelings. But Sondheim decided to put a distance between them to protect their partnership. Mary did hold on to hope. She called off her next engagement because she wanted to be with Stephen. And if you ask Mary, she said there was some talk of a future relationship between them. Sondheim says differently, though there was talk of setting up a platonic love, a cover-up. Nothing came of it. And it caused a strain for a while between the pair. Mary had to accept that being a gay man was something that Sondheim just couldn't shut off. In the meantime, Sondheim was presented the opportunity to collaborate with Richard Rogers, Mary's father and the partner of his former mentor, Oscar Hammerstein. Arthur Lawrence thought there was potential for the pair to turn the play, The Time of the Cuckoo, into a musical. Only no one told Stephen Sondheim that Richard had developed a drinking problem. Lawrence and Sondheim worked well together, but the two had a tumultuous relationship while working on the field Anyone Can Whistle. They battled one another in letters that you can't find online. Lawrence accused Sondheim of being lazy. Sondheim clapped back with a rather robust, nobody likes you. But they always seemed to be aware of the abilities and talents of the other. Everyone worked to bring Richard Rogers and Sondheim together, but Rogers' ego and drinking problems came out in full force as he passed idea after idea onto Steve, with Steve not finding anything that he wanted to do. And so Rogers began lashing out at him. He had known Sondheim since he was 12, but he told him he had grown into a monster. Sondheim and Rogers argued over the new work, Do I Hear a Waltz? But Rogers was insulting of Sondheim's lyrics, throwing them away without helpful comment. And when the work was panned, Rogers put the blame solely on Sondheim. If it was jealousy or something else, it had to have been painful for his mentor's former partner to speak so disparagingly of him. Still, this collaboration with Rogers ran longer than the entire run of Anyone Can Whistle. That must have hurt. The final coup de grace came when Sondheim received his first ever Tony nomination from this project. A project that had alienated him from Arthur Lawrence, Richard Rogers, and Mary. But in the years that passed, Rogers did eventually admit that he considered Sondheim to be brilliant. In the meantime, Sondheim had tried therapy to deal with his homosexuality, but it didn't alleviate the urges. He had finally met a man on the set of Do I Hear a Waltz, and they dated for some time, but 
Sondheim was inexperienced in love and relationships, and he didn't know how to save a relationship. He once asked a friend's wife to describe what being married was like, and it resulted in him writing the song, Marry Me a Little, that would later appear in company, but Stephen was frequently naive and lost in that regard. The next few years were filled with Sondheim slowly being put back in his spot as a lyricist. This was not the life he wanted. Jerome Robbins would reappear, asking Sondheim for his work to turn Bertolt Brecht's plays The Measures Taken and The Exception and the Rule uh, into a musical. But Sondheim was not a Brecht fan. It was a huge matchup, but when people asked why the two hadn't worked together since West Side Story, Robbins would always respond, just wait. The two would spar. John Guerre said that Sondheim was like an awkward college student. They all knew he was brilliant, but it took a lot of coaxing and coaching, and Robbins finally got so fed up with Sondheim and the project that one day he just left with no warning. Sondheim from that moment on refused to be a lyricist any longer. His way, or the highway. Eventually, Robbins would ask Stephen to try again with Brecht, but he refused. Not everyone doubted Sondheim's ability to work, Harold Howe, Prince, decided to take a risk with Sondheim, urging him to write what he wanted. Prince had become more of a Broadway sensation himself with his seven-year production of Fiddler on the Roof. What Sondheim had was a collection of songs about love, or what he interpreted to be love at least. And as such, Sondheim set out to create a musical about modern love and marriage. It's the story of a young man named Bobby though productions frequently do gender swapping with the roles. And he's about to turn 35 and observes the married couples all around him and their struggles. Most notably, his friends Paul and Amy are about to get married, and Amy suffers a prenuptial panic attack. But they all paint being married with vague and optimistic euphemisms. But Bobby is too observant to buy it. Musicals can be brilliant but heady, and the story doesn't always translate well to audience. But company is bizarre, messy, complicated, and yet so loved. And let's be real, it was the 60s and early 70s. The drugs and alcohol made frequent appearances. There was a lot of pot. Elaine Stritch would be screaming about vodka stingers while she was intoxicated herself. And at one point, the actor playing Bobby expressed concerns about his character to someone in a bathroom. Who do I have to screw to get out of this show, he yelled. Unbeknownst to both, Sondheim was in a stall, and they hadn't noticed until they heard him wryly respond, the same one you screwed to get in the show. The musical would garner Sondheim his very first Tony Award win. In 1970, Sondheim's mother attempted suicide, and it was Hal Prince who had to call Sondheim and let him know. Friends often reported that his mother would often try to manipulate her son with guilt, and these attempts often happened. She had taken a fistful of sleeping pills, but her doctor had known of her behaviors and had switched out most of her pills with placebos. Sondheim had finally grown to a point that his mother held no power over him. He refused to immediately hop on the plane, taking a later flight, and he stuck his head in the door to ask if she was okay, and then he immediately left. Sondheim was not a little boy to be manipulated any longer. He allowed himself more pleasurable ventures. He and his friend, Anthony Perkins, most known to American cinephiles who know him as Norman Bates, spent a lot of time playing puzzle games and attending murder mystery weekends. And so the two decided to write a murder mystery thriller, and Sondheim remembers it 
as the happiest time of his life. Perkins and Sondheim set a murder mystery on a French yacht, a millionaire host game weekend in memory of his late wife, a gossip columnist named Sheila. Suddenly, the attendants begin receiving messages threatening to reveal their dirtiest secrets. And while it starts to look pretty par for the course, Sheila's husband dies in the middle of the game, leaving everyone to wonder who among them is responsible for the death of Sheila and her husband. Sondheim was finally able to be creative in a way that he enjoyed. Now, this movie did fairly well for itself, and in recent years, director Ryan Johnson directly shouted out The Last of Sheila as direct inspiration for his recent film Knives Out. Sondheim enjoyed his success with Company and Follies, and he had a distinct style, verbose, layered, often too difficult to sing for most. But he took extra strides to adapt his ideas to his actor's talents. With a show and one song in 1973, Sondheim fully cements his legacy. Isn't it rich? Are we a pair? Me here at last on the ground. You in midair. Sondheim decided to adapt Ingmar Bergman's film Smiles of a Summer Night, dubbing it A Little Night Music. And it was in this score that he wrote his most famous song ever, Send in the Clowns. The song was written specifically for Glennis Johns. It's deceptively simple, sung by Desiree about how foolish she had been. She and her lost lover, the aforementioned clowns. Glennis, Sondheim noted, had beautiful tone but couldn't hold notes for very long periods of time, so he constructed the song to allow her to cheat breasts. Broadway nowadays tends to skew more toward so-called triple threats, but in the past there were performers who weren't necessarily the strongest singers or dancers. In this case, singers like John's or even Rex Harrison and My Fair Lady, and the songs were tailored to fit their voices or talents. This song has been notably covered by people like Streisand and Frank Sinatra. How Prince had brought Sondheim to the top of his game, encouraging the eccentricity that most taught him to hide. The very things that made Sondheim annoying to his friends had made him a darling to the Broadway community. He was a risk taker, and his confidence continued to grow with each project. Meanwhile, let's check in with Katherine Hepburn. During a cast party for a little night music, Katherine Hepburn struck again. As Sondheim tells it, Katherine's face appeared like a ghastly witch, which she revealed that was exactly the look she was going for, in his dining room window. The party came to a halt as a few of them were treated to a jump scare. Once everyone stopped talking, Catherine, quite proud of herself, simply turned around, walked away, climbing off of his deck and going back into her apartment. Stephen was always unable to stop laughing when he recounted that story years later. Lynn Carew, who would later appear as Sweeney Todd in the show of the same name, would remember Sondheim working during a little night music. Though he was growing in ability and confidence, Lynn would always say that Sondheim was a little insecure. There's always this little thing on one's shoulder, Lynn remembered. I know I'm good, but am I really that good? Sondheim appeared to have that insecurity in abundance, and in an odd way, that questioning is what made him good. He remained humble and questioned everything about himself. In the late 1970s, Sondheim found himself a bit more tired than normal. He was beloved, but tried to maintain balance. That is not an easy feat. 
He wanted to be recognized as brilliant, but his insecurities were always there, and he would frequently self-medicate with pot or booze or cigarettes. His relationship with his mother continued to deteriorate until a night before a scheduled surgery. She had sent Sondheim a note in case she were to die, so he would know how she felt about him. The letter read, My only regret in life is giving birth to you. Sondheim knew better than to react to Janet Sondheim's behavior. He wrote her back to let her know he would continue to take care of her for the rest of her life, but he would never speak to her again. All money would go through his agent. Sondheim cut his mother out of his life. He would see her again a while later, but Janet had hurt him to the point of no return. She would die some years later. Sondheim would not attend her funeral, but he did pay for it. Sweeney Todd would mark the pinnacle of Sondheim's career. People had begun to realize Sondheim wasn't just a product of a bygone era on Broadway. People had begun to realize that Sondheim was actually trying new things. What culminated here was a tale inspired by the dreadful, bloody Guignol Theater, a genre of French theater based on voyeurism and dark horror and violence. A barber betrayed wrongfully and imprisoned seeks revenge against a powerful man and takes a lot of innocent people with him. Benjamin Barker, Sweeney Todd. Slitting throats and kicking bodies down a chute where his downstairs neighbors disposed of the corpses by baking them into meat pies. Inspired by a play by English playwright Christopher Bond, Sondheim insisted this show keep all the horrifying elements of the original. Bond, of course, was taking this horrific legend, and Sondheim was entranced by his vision. He reached out to ask about the Broadway rights so he could turn the play into a musical. It took a few years, but it was Titus Andronicus. It was bloody revenge, and most people would have never thought it would work or that Sondheim would even have it in him. And yet, Sondheim found that dark humor, and he capitalized on the dark and light in this show. It made people very uncomfortable. The funniest moment in the show is when Mrs. Lovett, a struggling pie shop owner, gets an idea on what to do with the remains of a man Sweeney has just killed. Meat was expensive, she reasons, and the victim has such a nice frame. There's a long pause, if you get it. Todd, who takes a minute to follow her logic, suddenly understands her innuendos on the topic and begins laughing, to which Lovett responds, Good, you got it. There had been worry as to whether Broadway was ready for such a dark topic. But the horrified laughs from the crowd proved they were. After the show, Sondheim gleefully ran into star Lynn Carew's arms, screaming, They got it! They got it! This is Sondheim's Renaissance era. He had come into this unique voice. He seemed unstoppable. But three weeks after Sweeney Todd opened, Sondheim suffered a sharp pain in his left arm and chest. As he was taken to the hospital, he could scarcely believe what was happening. Sondheim was having a heart attack. He said he didn't think he was dying, but he certainly came pretty close. His doctors cautioned him to slow down and rest, and for two weeks, Sondheim laid around depressed, thinking maybe I should just die now. This was a lovely prospect. Going out on top. Sweeney Todd would be the last legacy he left in the world. But someone as creative as Sondheim could never stop going, even though his doctors warned him to slow down. 
Sondheim wanted Tony for the score of Sweeney Todd. But the air of Broadway was changing. One of his contemporaries was ramping up and changing the direction of the theater in the 1980s. I'll give you one guess as to who that contemporary may be. God's Favorites is a bi-weekly history podcast hosted and produced by me, Melissa. Thanks to everyone who donates to our Patreon to supply books, cover streaming costs, and music licensing. Sources for today's episode include Sondheim, A Life by Meryl Seacrest, an article from the New York Post by Michael Rydell, A Thin Line Between Love and Hate for Lawrence and Sondheim, Finishing the Hat by Stephen Sondheim, Playbill.com, and Broadway.com. Join us again in two weeks. I promise it'll be just two weeks this time. As Andrew Lloyd Webber becomes Sondheim's number one rival. And, of course, we'll go into the woods and check back in, of course, with Sondheim's neighbor, Catherine Hepburn. See you next time, friends.